Section 13, comprising chapters 37 and 38 of Life and Adventures of Frank and Jesse James by J.A. Dacus. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by P.J. Lando. Chapter 37, In Minnesota. The Bandits Seek a New Field. Frank James and the Younger Brothers, Bill Chadwell, Miller, and Pitts, The Long Ride. Hitherto, the brigands, led by the Jameses and the Youngers, had only committed outrages in those countries with the physical features of which they were well acquainted. They had ridden through Missouri, Arkansas, Texas, and Kentucky, and Iowa was not so far away from their haunts in Clay County that they could not reasonably hope to retreat to their hiding places. The list of outrages already committed by them was extravagantly long. Commencing at Russellville, Kentucky, they had ransacked bank safes at Gallatin, Corridon, Iowa, Columbia, Kentucky, St. Genevieve, Missouri, Huntington, West Virginia, and a section of the band had paid a visit to and plundered the bank at Corinth, Mississippi. They had stopped trains in Kansas, Wyoming, Iowa, and Missouri, and they had plundered stages in Arkansas, Texas, and Kansas, but over the whole territory intervening between the widely separated scenes of their depredations, they had often traveled and were perfectly familiar with the topography of the country and had friends in many places. Having achieved such remarkable success in their nefarious calling, the brigand chiefs were emboldened to enter upon new enterprises and seek new fields for the exercise of their prowess and genius they agreed to go beyond the borders of their accustomed field of operations. After Otterville, a part of the gang went into St. Clair County, and the other members of the banditti proceeded to Clay County, to the vicinity of Kearney, where resided the mother of Frank and Jesse James, Mrs. Zerelda Samuels. That person was always true to the interests of her sons, and under no circumstances did she ever desert their cause or betray their designs. Mrs. Samuels was a very useful ally of Frank and Jesse, and when hard-pressed in other quarters, they were always sure of a safe retreat and succor in the vicinity of the Samuels' house. The successful robbery accomplished at Otterville had created a profound sensation throughout the Southwest, and the law-abiding citizens were vigilant and suspicious. And it was not a pleasant time to travel in any direction where the least possible suspicion in regard to the character of the traveler was once aroused. Therefore, the robbers of the train at Otterville sought their hiding places and remained quiet for a time. But idleness under such circumstances became extremely irksome to the free riders accustomed as they were to a life of activity and exciting adventure. The division of the band from St. Clair County journeyed into Clay County, Missouri, and then began a series of conferences in regard to the next campaign which they contemplated inaugurating. These consultations between the leaders of the banditti were held in a thick forest near the residence of Mrs. Samuels. The result of the deliberations was the development of a plan to pay a visit to Minnesota and raid some bank there, the exact place of its situation to be determined when they should have arrived in that state. Who originated the scheme is a question which, in all human probability, will forever remain unanswered. The credit of the project has been often given to Jesse James, 
whether or not he originated it, we have good reason to know that he was one of the parties who went to Northfield, and in all probability he was the leader of the band. Be that as it may, a plan was concocted to pay a visit to Minnesota and plunder as many of the banks in that state as possible before the beginning of winter, and then retire to winter quarters on the Texas and Mexican frontiers. The general plans were finally agreed upon, and about the middle of August, 1876, the bandit camp in the vicinity of the Samuels house was broken up, and the brigands, separating in couples, commenced their long ride through the country to the flourishing villages of Minnesota. The party which left Clay County was composed of Frank and Jesse James, Coleman, Robert, and James Younger, Clell Miller, Bill Chadwell, and Charlie Pitts. It is related on what appears excellent authority that Cole Younger and Bill Chadwell preceded the other members of the gang to fix upon a suitable rendezvous. Near Mankato, Bill Chadwell had a friend, a man who had often before rendered him substantial service. Preconcerted signs of the route to be taken by the main body of the bandits had been left by the advance guard, Cole Younger and Bill Chadwell. The final rendezvous selected by these leaders was at Mankato, and the whole band then proceeded to Chadwell's friend's resting place, where their final councils were held. A gentleman of the highest respectability, well known in central Missouri, who is in a position to be informed, assures us that Cole Younger did not favor an attack on the bank at Northfield. Indeed, that he was opposed to raiding any bank in Minnesota, but that he was overruled in his judgment by the other members of the gang. It is said that Cole favored a movement into Canada, where the prospects for a large haul were believed to be much better. But whatever might have been his wishes, the other members of the band did not accede to him, and after due consideration it was determined to strike a Minnesota bank. Cole Younger was too far committed to recede, and so he submitted to the will of the majority and was among the law's victims after Northfield. Bill Chadwell was for many years a border rough and horse thief in Minnesota. He had committed depredations in many parts of that state and was perfectly familiar with the geography and topography of the country. With a vast number of the dishonest and rough class in that state, he was on terms of intimate personal acquaintance. To him, as a guide, the other members of the brigand company looked with confidence to lead them successfully to a handsome deposit of spoils and away from pursuers and pursuit. Chadwell's friends were relied upon to afford them succor in the hour of need, and Chadwell's skill inspired them with hopes of great gains at a small sacrifice of time and little risk of danger. All these things had been discussed and the plans of the gang were well matured before the departure from Clay County. It was a long expedition, and the principal members of the company were unfamiliar with the country into which they journeyed. They based their hopes of success on the conditions which at that time existed in Minnesota. It was at that season of the year when the grain growers were disposing of their crops, when it was supposed grain buyers and shippers would have their heaviest deposits in bank, and when the farmers were in funds, which the robbers doubted not would be placed in the country banks for safekeeping. Moreover, they reasoned that inasmuch as the people of Minnesota were unacquainted with their bold methods, 
that, as usual, when they made an onset, the customary panic would ensue and the risk taken would be small. Thus the preliminaries of the celebrated raid into Northfield were settled. Never before had this gang of desperadoes failed in accomplishing their object, and when the last council was held, and it was settled that Northfield should be the objective point of their great raid into Minnesota, the signs were propitious, and the superstitious element in the character of the outlaws rested satisfied. The remainder of the band divided into couples. Jesse and Frank James, as usual, traveled the road in company. Bob Younger and Charlie Pitts went together, and James Younger and Clell Miller bore each other company by the way. These separate detachments traveled different roads and kept a good lookout for favorable places for concealment in case of necessity, and they also noted the characteristics of the surface of the country over which they passed. Previous to leaving Missouri, Jesse James wrote, or caused to be written, two letters for publication in the Kansas City Times, denying the charge of complicity in the Otterville robbery, and denouncing the statement of Hobbs Carey as a villainous pack of lies. These letters were printed, and led to the belief that the Jameses were still in Missouri. The latest one of these letters was dated Safe Retreat, August 18, 1876, and appeared in the Kansas City Times, August 23, 1876. Divided as they were, their passage through the country excited no comment. They traveled as respectable persons might have traveled. In the evenings, they would put up at a respectable village inn or country farmhouse, and in the morning, they paid for their accommodations as any other reputable citizens might have done. They did not hurry, because they did not want to break down their horses. The distance was great, and they were many days on the road. It was about the 1st of September, 1876, when the whole band had arrived in the neighborhood of Mankato. Their advance agents, having found a suitable place for a rendezvous at the house of Chadwell's friend, met their comrades, and without exciting suspicion among the people, they directed the various detachments to the designated place of meeting. The robbers were now in Minnesota, but as yet they had not determined which of more than half a dozen banks they would rob. First, the claims of some one of the three banks doing business in Mankato to the distinction were considered. But the proposition to rob any one of them met with little consideration in the council of the brigands. They reasoned that three banks in such a place would naturally cause the business and investment funds of the community to be divided into three parts, no one of which could be very large, and as they played for high stakes at a great risk, they concluded to let Mankato banks alone. Then they considered the claims of the bank at St. Peter to be plundered. But there was not enough business done in the place, and it was not surrounded by a community deemed wealthy, and the brigands concluded to pass St. Peter, believing that they would not get a large haul in case they should raid the place. Several other banks were considered, and the probabilities as to the amount of treasure likely to be obtained were all considered. Finally, indications pointed to the Bank of Northfield as probably richer in the treasures contained in its vaults than any other in that region of Minnesota. Northfield, the place selected by the desperadoes as the scene of their attempt at plundering, 
is a nourishing town on the line of the Milwaukee and St. Paul Railroad, situated in the northeast corner of Rice County, Minnesota. The town is compactly built and contains a population of about 2,000 souls. The country around Northfield is very productive, and there is considerable activity in commercial pursuits in the village. The bank building is situated in the very center of the business portion of the town. At the time the raid was made, a large sum of money had accumulated in the vault of the institution. But Northfield happened to be peopled by a hardy and courageous race of pioneers who were not made of the material to submit with a good grace to be plundered by strange outlaws from another state. But the leaders of the brigands had selected Northfield and it only remained to fix upon a time when the attempt should be made. That time was set for the afternoon of September 7, 1876. Chapter 38. The Attack at Northfield. Haywood's Death. The Raid on the Bank. The Cashier Shot. Bill Chadwell Killed in the Street. The Citizens Come to the Rescue. Fusillades in the Town. The Bandits Forced to Go Out in Quick Time. A Hot Pursuit capture of the Youngers. Sometime before noon on the 7th of September, four well-mounted and well-armed men approached Northfield from the north. They did not at once enter the town, but remained on that side of the bridge in the suburbs for the advance of the other division of the band, which came via Dundas, a small station on the line of the railway about four miles south of Northfield. The brigands from Dundas were Cole and James Younger, Bill Chadwell, and Clell Miller. On the north side were Frank and Jesse James, Charlie Pitts, and Robert Younger. About two o'clock in the afternoon, Cole Younger and his party appeared. Then the brigands rode into town and directly to the bank, the exact position of which had been before ascertained. Jesse and Frank James and Cole Younger dismounted and entered the bank. The brigands had entered the town at a full charge, shouting at the top of their voices and firing off their pistols as they rode. The inhabitants were taken by surprise, but were not at all panic-stricken. The movement on the bank was noted, and its object at once comprehended. The three leading brigands who had entered the bank proceeded to business at once. They sprang over the counter and confronted the surprised cashier, Mr. J. L. Haywood, with a huge knife, which they placed at his throat, and ordered him to open the safe, threatening him with instant death in case he refused. The knife had already marked his throat, but the brave cashier refused to comply with their demands. Again, with fearful threats, the command was repeated, but Haywood still persisted in his refusal when one of them, now generally believed to have been Jesse James, placed the muzzle of his pistol to Haywood's right temple and fired. The cashier fell and expired ere he had touched the floor. Besides the cashier, there were Mr. A. E. Bunker, assistant cashier, and Mr. Frank Wilcox, clerk. These were ordered to hold up their hands when the robbers first entered. Of course, under the circumstances, they could not do otherwise than to obey. After Haywood fell, they turned to Mr. Bunker and ordered him to open the vault. That gentleman declared that he did not know the combination. Then they thrust a pistol into his face and made other threatening demonstrations. Mr. Bunker, acting under an impulse to preserve his own life, fled out through the back door. 
As he ran, the robbers fired at him, the ball taking effect in his shoulder. They seemed not to have paid any further attention to Mr. Wilcox, but occupied the remainder of the brief time allowed them in efforts to find the cashier's money drawer. The nickel drawer was found, and they scattered the contents of that over the floor. Meanwhile, an exciting scene was transpiring in the street in front of the bank building. A Mr. Wheeler, a young gentleman who occupied a second-story room in a building opposite, happened to possess a gun. Seizing this weapon, he took deliberate aim and fired. The ball took effect, and Charlie Pitts, a notorious Texas desperado, fell from his horse, shot through the heart. The shots fired by the brigands who had remained on the street did not have the desired effect in intimidating the citizens of Northfield. In a few moments, many citizens who had seized guns and pistols and whatever other weapons came in their way were rushing toward the bank. Mr. Wheeler, having been so successful in his first shot, fired a second time, and Bill Chadwell fell, mortally wounded from his horse. By this time, others were firing from windows, and one of the horses was struck and fell dead. Another horse, which had been ridden by Charlie Pitts, ran through the street. Another one of the band was struck by a bullet, but managed to keep his place. The situation was desperate. The leaders in the bank had not succeeded in getting anything when the events happening in the street admonished them that their only salvation was in immediate flight. They rushed out of the bank, mounted their horses, and the six living bandits galloped away. Indeed, there was need that they should. Already a band of fifty citizens, well-mounted and well-armed, were nearly ready to take the road in pursuit. At the head of this party rode Wheeler, who had already proved himself to be cool and daring. The flight of the discomfited robbers was rapid. These free riders would never mount an inferior horse. But chances for escape were very few. The robbery, or rather bold attempt at robbery, and especially the death of Mr. Haywood, a gentleman held in the very highest esteem by the community at Northfield, had created a state of feeling in the public mind which would not allow the people to rest satisfied until the murderers were either captured or killed. In less than 24 hours, the whole region about was notified of the occurrence at Northfield, and not less than 400 well-armed and well-mounted men were in hot pursuit of the six surviving brigands. The excitement occasioned by the events at Northfield was at fever heat. Efforts to capture the outlaws were further stimulated by the proclamation of Governor Pillsbury offering a reward of $1,000 for the apprehension of each of the robbers, or $6,000 for the capture of the survivors of the band. The bandits fled in a southwestern direction toward the little hamlet of Shieldsville, situated about 20 miles on an airline, southwest from the scene of the tragedy at Northfield. The route taken by the robbers made the distance more than 25 miles, yet they were at Shieldsville before dark. They passed straight through the place and made no concealment of their identity. Shieldsville is a small post village containing a population of no more than 175 souls. As they passed through the village, they shouted to the citizens who were on the streets to get into their houses, and they made such demonstrations by firing off their pistols that the people were greatly alarmed. The pursuers, meanwhile, were gathering about them. Sheriff Davis and Posse were behind them. Sheriff Estes and Posse were before them, and there were officers and armed citizens to the right and to the left of them. 
their situation became extremely critical after leaving Shieldsville. But the indomitable courage of the bandits seemed for a time to promise them a final escape. From Shieldsville, the bandits traveled in a westerly direction toward Kilkenny, a post town and railway station in Lasseur County. They were now avoiding the towns and traveling highways and keeping in the forest and traveling through the farms. All the crossing places on the streams were guarded by armed citizens. The guards at the ford on French Creek became alarmed at the approach of the bandits and fled, so that they met no resistance at the crossing place. They remained one night for rest in a large forest near Kilkenny. The next morning they crossed the ford at Little Canyon. They pressed on toward the west. The route was beset with difficulties and dangers for them. They were anxious to reach the borderland, the frontier region, where men are few and wild. There was no rest for them. It was at length necessary for them to abandon their horses. They had camped in the depths of a great forest. The officials had taken to the by-paths and scoured the woods in search of them. Leaving their horses and some of their heavier clothing, they trudged on foot, skulking among the thickets. Their progress was slow. One day they camped on a sort of a peninsula about a mile from a church. They were now thoroughly exhausted. Their diet had been green corn, potatoes, and watermelons for several days, and they had been constantly on the move. Here a stray calf came along, and they shot it in the head, but the calf did not fall. On the contrary, it ran away. A small pig passed by their camp, and one of them shot it in the head, but the pig refused to succumb and ran away. After leaving their isolated camp in the evening, footsore and worn out by reasons of the anxiety and fatigue, they pushed forward in a more southerly direction, leaving Cleveland and the forest, where they had abandoned their horses, to the right. At midnight, they had reached Marysburg, a small post village in the southern part of Lasseur County. Finding a convenient hiding place, they kindled a fire and had a meal of roasted potatoes and corn. The village clock struck six. They heard the bell and judged themselves to be about a mile from the town. They left the Marysburg camp somewhat refreshed and with buoyant hope of an ultimate escape from impending peril. Thus far they had eluded their pursuers. Their route from Marysburg lay southwestward through Blue Earth Country to Mankato. They made good headway during the day, and late in the evening they found a nice hiding place in a thicket in a cornfield, and lay very quiet without making a fire. Twice during the night they were alarmed by persons passing near them. Their hiding place happened to be near a neighborhood path which ran through the fields. Six days after the affair at Northfield, when the worn robbers were struggling along through a great forest near Schaubutz, a few miles in a northeasterly direction from Mankato, they came suddenly upon a man named Dunning, who was one of a posse of citizens in pursuit of them. They at once captured this man, and a question arose as to the course to be taken with him. At once it was suggested by someone of the band to bind him fast to a tree and so leave him. Dunning pleaded hard for his life, and to be spared the terrible ordeal of such an uncertainty as that of being left bound in that great forest. It might be days before he would be discovered, and it might be that no human being would pass that way until he would be starved. Finally, from motives of humanity, as they claim, they administered to Dunning the most terrible oaths 
that he would not say one word about having seen them until they had ample time allowed to get out of the country altogether. Dunning gladly consented to take upon himself these solemn obligations, and they let him go. The released citizens sought the haunts of men and made haste to communicate to others all the particulars of his adventure with the robbers in the woods, and then the pursuit was renewed with new ardor and zeal. At midnight, six days after Northfield, the weary bandits trudged through Mankato in a very different plight from that in which they had made their entry into the place but a little more than a week before. As they approached the town with which they had made themselves familiar as they went to Northfield, they were alarmed by the shrill whistle of the oil mill. They concluded that their approach had been noted, and the steam whistle was the signal agreed upon to call the citizens together in case the approach of the robbers was noted. They therefore turned aside from the main streets and sought the lanes and alleys back of the oil mill. Here they hid a while, but as there did not seem to be any movement among the citizens, they stealthily passed on across the bridge. The guards had retired, or were not disposed to attack the six desperados. At any rate, they were not interrupted. After crossing, they raided a field of watermelons, selected four large ones, and under the deep shade of the trees, at the hour of one o'clock, they had a feast on the melons. They visited a house nearby and got one spring chicken, and would have secured more had time been allowed. But they heard a great shouting of people, and saw one man looking for tracks. They fled at once up a bank, and pushed forward through the woods bordering the Blue Earth River. During the day, they crossed that stream. It was on the day after they passed Mankato that Frank and Jesse James, who appeared to have suffered less from the fatigue and exposure than the others, bid a last adieu to their comrades in the ill-starred Northfield Enterprise. Only Cole Younger and his brothers Jim and Bob and Clell Miller were left. The pursuers struck the trail of the Jameses, and these desperados now had a terrible time in eluding those who sought them. They were repeatedly fired upon and were both wounded severely several times. The four men left in the Blue Earth River forest struggled on toward the west. They had passed through the county of Blue Earth and entered Watawan County, full 75 miles on a straight line from Northfield, and 125 miles by the route they had traveled. They had reached the swamps bordering the Watawan River. They had been now exposed to untold hardships from the afternoon of the 7th of September to the 21st of the same month, a period of 14 days. They had subsisted on green corn, potatoes, and melons, for the most part, during that whole time. They had had but little sleep, and had been constantly harassed by their pursuers. For nine days and nights they had been compelled to walk through forests and thickets, and their clothes had been literally picked from their bodies by the thorns and brambles through which they had struggled. Their feet were in a most terrible condition, but their pursuers still followed them with a grim resolve that nothing could equal. On the afternoon of the 21st, Sheriff McDonald of Sioux City, having tracked the brigands to a swamp a few miles from Medelia, the county seat of Watawan County, Minnesota, the final struggle commenced. The sheriff's forces had surrounded the swamp where the brigands lay concealed. The armed citizens then began to close in upon the surrounded men, keeping up a continuous fire as they advanced. 
The bandits were not the men to yield, even to a superior force, without making a desperate resistance. One of the sheriff's men was severely, and another was slightly wounded as they closed in upon the wearied but still determined men. The continuous volleys poured into the thicket where the bandits had concealed themselves were not without effect. First Clell Miller fell, moaned once, and then his lips became mute forever. A heavy rifle ball then crashed through Jim Younger's jaw, shattering the lower jawbone in a most frightful manner. Cole Younger received seven wounds, and Bob was shot in the right elbow. They fought desperately, but what could four men do? Sheriff McDonald commanded a hundred and fifty courageous men whose lives had been spent on the frontiers. Resistance could no longer be offered. When one of their number had fallen and the other three were wounded, two of them nigh unto death. It was the last struggle of four as daring and dangerous men as ever rode over the western prairies. When resistance had ceased, the sheriff's men gathered around them. They were prisoners. Their last hour of freedom had expired. They were placed in spring wagons and carried into Medelia. The people of the whole surrounding regions came flocking into the town to see the renowned outlaws, for they had confessed that they were the Younger Brothers, whose fame as daring freebooters had already been extended over the entire country. In a few days, the wounded robbers, Cole, Jim, and Bob Younger, were carried to Faribault, the county seat of Rice County. They were closely guarded, as well to prevent excited citizens taking the law into their own hands as to ensure the safe custody of the bandits. The body of Clell Miller was conveyed to St. Paul to be embalmed. While confined at Faribault, the Youngers received every attention and rapidly recovered from the effects of their long exposure and the terrible wounds which they had received. During this time, a strong guard was maintained about their prison. Early in October, the Rice County Circuit Court met at Faribault, and Thomas Coleman, James, and Robert Ewing Younger were arraigned at the bar to plead to an indictment for murder in the first degree, and for conspiring to commit murder and robbery. Advised by counsel that under the laws of the state, the death penalty could not be inflicted in cases where the parties charged entered the plea of guilty, the three brothers pled guilty and were sentenced to the penitentiary at Stillwater for the term of their natural lives. A few days afterward, they were removed to their lifetime place of abode, and the stormy career of the Youngers closed. Since their incarceration, it is understood that Jim Younger has died. Cole and Bob, in their dreary isolation, still survive, without hope of breathing the air of freedom again. End of section 13